This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. All right, we're here with Robert Bruner, extraordinarily famous designer. What is it that uh, that you've designed? <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of things. I mean, I, I'm probably most recently most associated with with Beats by Dr. Dre, and, and we did help start that brand, developed all the products. Um, still continue to work work with the company. Um, my history is a sort of rare, born and raised Silicon Valley person. Grew up in the computer industry, um, and then eventually. Um, worked for Apple Computer and helped set up the design group at Apple. So developed uh, many products for Apple during the uh, 90s. And um, mostly, most of our work tends to be, have some technological component. And so I've just, you know, that, that that's really what I do is work within that business and actually figure out how to make really great stuff and how to make people make really great stuff is kind of what I do. Is, is, does your background have engineering and like electronics in it as well or yeah, well, it's, it's a little bit of um, family history. My, my, um, I said I was born and raised here, but I mean, literally, I, I am a child of the computer industry. My father, um, he worked at IBM and developed the very first uh, uh, hard disk drives at IBM and uh, literally mm. created the mechanism to access the heads, which is some of his work is still used in every disk drive that's still made today. Mm. So I literally grew up with this stuff in my garage, right? And, and then he also... He and five other engineers left IBM on the same day to start a company to go into competition with IBM. So mm. it was like, and this was 1968, so it was like one of the first ever spin-off startups. Mm-hmm. Right? So mm-hmm. this is the kind of stuff I grew up with. And, yeah. and my mother, on the other end, was a, a, a fine artist and a fashion model and also an entrepreneur. She started a children's clothing business. So in our house, everything was a project. You know, I mean, every, I used to, we used, it was hilarious. Every year, the, you know, the Christmas tree was another project. We had this <laughs> attic full of ornaments and it was always some sort of um, theatrical display of um, design and color that, you know, so that was just the kind the of- The spec starts to come together months before. Yeah. The- <laughs> it was, it was uh, you know, Eames-like, but in a very kind of, you know, low-key huh. way, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, anyway. so how did you get into to product design specifically? Like once you, did you like decide you wanted to be a designer and then decide you wanted to pick that as a discipline or did you- just you know, like making stuff. It w- well, I always like making stuff, you know, and that that was, you know, in retrospect, I I should have figured it out a lot longer. But you know, I when I in high school, I was good in in math and science and art. I was really good in shop, you know. <laughs> but you know, the counselor said, "Oh, you're an engineer, right?" So my dad was an engineer. Figured I'll go study engineering. Um, went to San Jose State University, spent a year in engineering school, and got dissatisfied. And you know, it, it was I did fine, but I felt like you know it was. To every problem, you went to find a formula to solve it. And that you know that was early engineering classes, but that's what just didn't feel creative. So I decided to go over to the art department, you know, maybe mm-hmm. follow my mother's footsteps. And you know the serendipity was I walked into the door in the art building, and that by that particular door was a display case full of industrial design work. 
mm-hmm. renderings and models. And I said, yeah, well, this is it. This is what I want to mm-hmm. do. I always think if I'd walked into another door, who knows what I would have done, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, you know, that's how I discovered it. And, and it really pissed my father off. You know, he felt like, he, I remember him saying, the industrial designers are the guys who spec the paint and it usually peels off, was what he hmm. said. So, um, but anyway, he, he got over that. And actually, after a while, he thought it was okay. Yeah. Yeah, the, the same, I remember I always, I grew up in a town where there's a lot of tech and I always wanted to be an inventor. And I thought that everyone told me like, okay, well, if you want to be invent things, you must be an engineer. So then I went and did a internship at Hewlett Packard in high school and it was, it was soul crushing. And so then I went to college and kind of bounced back and forth between engineering and film department. And I didn't even learn that product design was like a thing until I got to grad school. And I wish that more people would realize that, that you can be technical as well as like make design things and not necessarily just having to be like searching out equations to plug them in. Yeah, I, th- I think it has a lot to do with the education because I, today I work with some incredibly creative engineers that are just brilliant and and, yeah. and very innovative and come up with some amazing stuff. But, you know, w- the beginnings of that program wasn't weren't that way. So anyway, that's how I stumbled onto industrial design. And just, I mean, from that point forward, I, I never, I, every class, you know, straight A's. I mean, it just, and it wasn't, it was hard work, but it wasn't because it just, I loved it and it was, it was fantastic. So where does your where does your appreciation for like the the technical constraints come from, right? Because that's like that. I mean, the impressive thing about a lot of your design work is that it is beautiful, but also fits within the the technical constraints of whatever it is that you're doing. And I think there's an idea of like pure design that comes up with something beautiful, but then when it comes time to do the, the DFM and mm-hmm. you know getting it produced, does it actually work? Yeah, I you know I always say this to people that there there is a misconception about design and product design in particular, and that most people focus on concept as the big part of design. And it mm-hmm. is important having a great concept and a direction and, and all the wonderful work that goes to develop and, and, and display that. But it, it is really one of those 10% inspiration, 90% perspiration things, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the difference between, let's say, me and a sculptor is, you know, my, my goal is to figure out how to make one perfect thing in thousands or tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands or millions, mm-hmm. right? And so doing that, you know, and then of course you get thrown into it, of course you'd like it to be commercially successful, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you throw all <laughs> these things in there and, and creating a beautiful, functional, desirable thing is, is very challenging, but that, that's actually part of the excitement of it is, is, is working with all the different constraints and parameters and information and figuring out where you need to push and the thing I, I have discovered over the years is design, doing great design and seeing it out in the world is as much a social game mm-hmm. as, as anything else. Because, mm-hmm. you know, unless you're, you know, a one man company, right, making something, you have to figure out how to inspire and lead a group of people to figure out how to do something they haven't done before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so but that, so that's, that's where the technical aspect, I mean, part of it, I just love making stuff. Yeah. I always did. Mm-hmm. Always, you know, wh- whether it was working on the bike, building the model, um, you know, that I loved that. And so, um, like I said, I, I, that was one reason when looking back at my school, I realized, you know, I was, I kicked ass in wood shop and metal shop, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> because I, you know, I loved making things and I love making them look good and, uh-huh. and figuring out how to do that and, and figuring out how to put it together and all those things. So, 
it it is a big part of the craft. Like I said, a lot of people focus on oh the 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 finesse and the beauty and the mm -hmm. finish and you know all the the, the sort of very the styling. Yeah, the, and the, and the and the and the very artistic side of making something beautiful and appealing. But there's just this gigantic component of actually okay, that's mm -hmm. great. Now how are you going to produce that? Yeah, you mentioned the the brilliant you know engineers that you work with now who are creative mm -hmm. um, and and design oriented do you think that's something that's changed recently is that a, an awareness that people have now that they didn't uh, you know a decade or two ago well yeah, sort of that's one of that's a yes and no i mean there there's always you know in all, all my career and i've been doing this longer and i want to admit but there always you know you you find very creative people in the in in engineering teams that just you really are driven to do something interesting and figure mm -hmm. out how to do it um and there are many people that are just very focused on um process and just <sighs> you know, repetition and making everything very understandable and so forth. So there's different extremes. But I think what has changed in the last five years is this idea of being design driven. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. especially here in, in the US where, you know, it took a while for um, a lot of companies other than a small handful to figure out that to build great products, you need to start with what people are experiencing mm -hmm. and go backwards into your system and figure out how to achieve that great experience, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, and that, that requires a, a, an attention and understanding and appreciation of design across the board, not just designers, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, and then it puts a lot of emphasis on engineering of, of also being design driven, not just from the traditional engineering practice, but from the more um, emotional side of how do right. I, how do we actually determine how to make this thing right you know in, in this way that people are going to respond to in this way right yeah so that that has become something that I think has changed to some degree the engineering profession as well as the design profession but really sort of gotten people around this idea of you know when you connect the dots between the initial let's make something to delivering it out into the world and beyond mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. there there has to be a common thread of an understanding of the design and what everybody's role is in creating that right right so like how do you balance those two things right because i mean it's always a point of contention when making a product like the engineering versus the design team is like the you know classic thing that people talk about and you know if it doesn't work then it doesn't work but also if it's not well designed then like nobody cares so yeah. like how do you <laughs> exactly <laughs> how do you you know so like on one hand you can't just let the engineers completely have their way and say like you know like we're gonna do it exactly like this but also like if you send like a surface model that you made in rhino to mm. a factory then like that's not gonna happen either so mm. like i guess this question's kind of open-ended but like do you have thoughts on on how to navigate that process when when making an actual product that you want to make to become a real thing um, yeah and it is this i mentioned this this sort of idea of being uh, this social engineering where you really have to get people to understand, convince them, conjole them, threaten them, whatever, you know, to sort of get them on the wagon. Now, now there's a lot of things that make a good product, right? Beyond the uh, aesthetics and the functionality and, you know, and usability and so forth and so on. You know, it, it, you're right. It has to hit a certain cost window, right? It, it has to be able to be, it has to be reliable. There's a lot of things that go into it, right? And they're all, they're all very important. So, but as you said earlier, if, people aren't interested in it and, yeah. and aren't excited by it and want it to be part of their lives, none of that matters. Mm -hmm. right? So that, that's, that's a constant point that I drew home that, that doing something that we want to do may take some extra work. It may be harder. We may have to invent something, right, that we haven't done before. But the end goal is to build something that people want to be part of and experience and have in their lives. And the interesting thing, one of the reasons I, I got into this um, 
field was I, I, I was, I've always been kind of fascinated about objects and the role that they play in people's lives. And that in many ways, as a species, we define ourselves by objects, mm -hmm. the things that we buy and put around us and wear and drive and live in and so forth. Mm -hmm. You know, we use those as tools to kind of define ourselves and our existence. So, so the, the importance of objects in our lives is very interesting. And I've always found that to be fascinating. And, and it is a very powerful thing that can drive commerce as well, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of, and, and, you know, that was one of the things that was very clear about the success of Beats was, was not just building, um, a, a nice looking audio product, but building an artifact that people wanted to wear because to them, it felt like they were joining something special mm -hmm. and being part of something special. And that that's, you know, when that's product design at, at its best, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, beyond the function and so forth. So, and I mean, it sounds a little esoteric and out there, but that's a lot of what we do is sort of figure out not just how to make something beautiful and then how to produce it, but really how to sort of find a way to fit in someone's life in a way that's meaningful and, and, and positive, positive. So I just would be interested to know if you have thoughts on, you know, I have friends in startups who like make products and do lots of stuff like that. And when you aren't a giant firm or you aren't, you know, Samsung or you aren't Apple or whoever, and you don't have unlimited money to like design the perfect new manufacturing process for your thing that popped out of your head. Like I see a lot of people get into trouble because, you know, there's this whole design driven product right. thing happening and people are thinking, okay, well, if I just design it and then like religiously stick to the idea that we're going to force it to be like this, people get themselves into trouble because yep. it turns out you can't make it. So mm -hmm. like how, how can one navigate those waters like during the design process of like knowing how to pick the right thing to focus on? when making your product if you don't have unlimited or huge amounts of resources? Well, it's exactly that. You have to understand what resources you have at hand. And, and we go through the same thing all the time with we're working with startups all the way up to, to large corporations. And, and it, it is really understanding. I mean, we will always push, right? And But you have to have, have a cognizance, cognizance and a responsibility, actually, to make sure that you're doing something that's within someone's means. Because you can do a lot of things, right? You can do almost anything given time and money. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and, and so you really have to look at that, you know, how much time we really yeah. have to do this and what resources are available that we may not be able to do this, this special transparent ceramic that we saw once that seemed <laughs> really cool. It was used on a missile on a warhead <laughs> yeah, exactly. once. Right, so right. yeah, that would be really cool, right? That, right? That's probably not appropriate for this startup with, you know, with about one and a half million dollars of capital trying to get something out. To make a Bluetooth mm. accessory. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, you know, so it's always that way. Um, Time is a, is a real challenging issue because what time there's so much time compression it tends to um, force a conservatism on people and basically what happens is especially when you get into development and manufacturing you want to do the same thing you did before because mm -hmm. it's predictable right we did it before we knew it worked we'll do it again and but what happens many times is then you're making the same shit as everybody else right? <laughs> so mm -hmm. we'll always look for what's this one particular area that we can push on what's this one thing we can move farther that will allow this thing to be special and 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 have a have a you know a a, a, a deeper higher quality aesthetic or functionality you know that's the you know, sort of pick and choose your battles i think where people get into a lot of trouble is they either try and do do reinvention that's beyond their means or they try and do too many things too. Mm -hmm. those, mm -hmm. those are both both things you run into you have to sort of help people guide people through that and everyone admires apple in particular and uh underestimates the resources that they yeah. put into their manufacturing process absolutely I, I mean i talk a lot about the the absolute um 
Beacon Apple has been for companies, not just in technology and in all forms of manufacturing around the mm-hmm, world mm-hmm. that of, of, of excellence in design and, and craftsmanship and manufacturing. So that's fantastic. But, you know, you wouldn't believe how many people come into our studio wanting the Apple version of whatever they're making. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and that's cool too, but you always try and remind them you're not Apple. Yeah. Okay. And you don't have the same. <laughs> level of resource or time available to do something. Yeah. And so we're, we're going to work with you with, you know, it's like, you know, don't try and be Apple, be yourself, but be a good one, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and figure out how to, how, to, how, to, how to learn from companies like Apple and what they do and, and, and integrate some of that thinking and approach into your system. Yeah. But, you know, don't, you're, you're not going to be able to go out and buy 10,000 six-axis CNC milling machines to make, <laughs> yeah. you know, your, your, your machined aluminum enclosure. Yeah, exactly, because yeah. yeah. that's just not going to happen. Like, so. I think it's like you're... Your product is like your tomato plant and you love it and it's in your backyard and you plant it and you like do the dirt right and make sure it's nourished properly and like plant the tomato plant and like wait for a little while and then like you get a nice tomato out of it because you can do that in your house with those resources. Like Apple, the types of resources that they have is like, you know, you're gardening in your backyard. They're like terraforming another planet to like (laughs) make the atmosphere to then make the dirt to then like put, you know, it's like orders of magnitude different in like how you can how you can go through the process. Yeah. Yeah. Another interesting thing along those lines is, you know, what, again, I said, what makes a great product is as opposed to just a great design, right? And and, um, another example is that, you know, there many times there's a lot of um, pressure to be really innovative. And to many people, that means something completely new, never been seen before. And that's great. And a lot of times we look at that, but what I'm always cautioning people is there's this other issue. Again, we're, we're helping you to be commercially successful and it's the idea of, of understanding and acceptance of a thing, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. for example, uh, there's, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the June oven that, that we designed. It's, it's a very, very intelligent oven. It's an amazing product. It's just, it hasn't shipped yet. It was announced. Actually, it was announced just right before the solid conference. Uh-huh. But when we started working on it, we could have made it look like anything, right? Because uh-huh. they're starting from scratch, literally, on rethinking the oven. And I said to them, you know, I'll tell you, it's got to look like an oven, and have some familiarity there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we'll make it the best oven ever, right? And mm-hmm. beautiful and, and incredible functionality. But if it doesn't look like an oven, chances are people aren't going to buy it. Because You're not going to load it by lifting the top off like a hat. If and it's, putting yeah, if it's spherical it. and hovers above your countertop yeah. on a magnetic cushion, it's probably uh. going to freak a lot of people out, right? So right, let's right. just look at the conventions people understand, but make them really great. Mm-hmm. And that'll mm-hmm. lead to a much more successful product. And so like thinking about affordances is what you're saying. Yeah. And, and again, just understanding, right? And acute, right. acute understanding. I mean, the other interesting side of that equation, I, was, I thought was the, um, we didn't work on it, was the Lytro camera, the first mm-hmm. camera, which was not camera-like at all. Mm-hmm. And very cool, and very exciting. But I think it suffered from some acceptance problems because it, you didn't hold it like a camera. It didn't look like a camera. It didn't operate like a camera. So what is it? Yeah. You know? And people who are really into stuff like cameras turn out to be surprisingly conservative about what a camera feels like or what yeah. they want what they want to use. Yeah. So, uh, But so there are times just like to do radical reinvention. Mm-hmm. And, and you see those, right? You see mm-hmm. this, this mm-hmm. is an opportunity here to look at this thing and completely re- rethink it and come out with something new. And there are times yeah. when you look at it and say... We're going to design something that fits into people's lives and brings a really great experience. But what are the what are those you know the things that they understand to be and that are important? Mm-hmm. You guys did the you guys did the Polaroid Mini Cube though, right? Yeah, the cube, which is kind of a similar form factor to the Lytro. Yeah, it's a different class. You know, it's the it's the and I, that was that's a good example because there's um, that is not 
a point and shoot camera you hold up to your your eye and, yeah. and you know, snap <laughs> snap pictures of the Golden Gate Bridge. It's something right. you strap on your helmet or your dog or whatever. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and so the, it gave us that freedom. And what we were really looking for with that was, you know, something we we really believe in is, is creating um, an, an iconic value with a product. Mm-hmm. So it's something that holds as its own uniquely is 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 instantly recognizable and understandable as as you know that particular product. And so we were looking for different shapes. Originally, we were playing with a sphere. Turned out most of the components, of course, are not based on 90 degree angles. So we made <laughs> yeah. for a really big sphere. Yeah. <laughs> so we settled on a cube. The funny story about that was, um, and this is this goes back to the 90% perspiration thing, is we, we did our original design, our pre-engineering. We sent it to the factory in China to work, we worked with. And um, it came back and it was no longer a cube. And because they couldn't get the battery to fit right. So they decided we'll just make it a rectangular shape. Yeah. And we said, <laughs> they took that liberty. We said, yeah. well, you guys don't get it. It's a cube. <laughs> it's uh-huh. Not, uh-huh. Like, why would a, you make it a cube? It's That's not, hard. It's yeah. not the Polaroid brick, you know? Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. so, you know, we, we dove in and figured out a way to split the battery in two parts and, mm. you know, get it to fit into that. But that's some of the things you have to do, right, to make something work like that. Oh, then you have to start thinking about, like, how important is it that it's actually a cube? Because all of a sudden I have to be splitting the battery in half and everything like that. Yeah. But, but when, you know, we had decided, I mean, really, and this is, again, when, when design starts to work well, when, when brand and design and marketing are yeah. intertwined, right? Mm-hmm. And so it is the cube. That's the idea. Yeah. That's how you And so it's really it. important. Yeah. 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 So did you say it's yeah. a, a Polaroid brand? Cube? Yeah, it's like a, it's a little, it's it's like a, it's an, an action, action camera, camera, like a GoPro, yeah. except yeah, Polaroid. Yeah, we, we kind of, like you a, know, coined it the GoPro for the rest of us because it's yeah. relatively inexpensive and simple. And again, it's not something you're going to, you know, wear while base jumping. It's yeah. more, you'll, you know, put it on your toddler's bike helmet. And, right. But it also doesn't carry the intimidation of insisting yeah, yeah. that you be surfing. And it's $99. Skydiving so, yeah. with you know, your toddler. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you, you mentioned earlier the value of brand. And I think the, the way that brands like Polaroid have popped back into existence is a really interesting illustration of that. Yeah. That's been, it's been really Interesting for us. Polaroid, you know, I'm I'm of a generation where I it ha- it holds a lot of value for me. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the 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 land camera, the one touch, you know, and and just as being this social tool, you know, just mm-hmm. capturing moments and and I they they the, the company let that get away. They went bankrupt a couple times. Mm-hmm. They basically sold the brand off to licensees and mm-hmm. um, originally got involved with them. Interesting enough, through Lady Gaga. I was gonna ask, that was the next thing I was gonna ask you about. I want to hear about. Please tell, tell right, us the well, story. I'll come back to the Lady gla- of the glasses. I'll, I'll come back to Lady Gaga. But so anyway, I, I through that I, I met um, one of their licensees called CNA Marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're actually based in New Jersey and they held the uh, camera license. So we started working with them and really on this idea of, of recapturing some of that fun and social aspect and wonder of Polaroid products. And so mm-hmm. we've done the cube and we just uh, announced a product called the snap, which integrates a digital camera with a, with a um, zero ink printer. Mm-hmm. So you, you actually get prints, right? Which is ironic because all of a sudden that's really exciting. A novelty. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Yeah. I've got but physical media. Right, <laughs> right. And, and it's a print, a print no less that comes through digitization and then printing, yeah, right? Yeah. And, I know it's yeah. really ironic, but people love it. And so, um, but that that's how that happened. But yeah, no, that, I got introduced because we, um, you know, I was working with Beats and we did a, um, um, an in-ear product with, with Gaga, which was really interesting because she really was fairly active in the design. It was really hmm. kind of interesting and challenging because it was usually like a telephone call from a bus somewhere between <laughs> tours. But, 
uh, between tour dates but um, and and with with concrete feedback or with yeah. like i think it needs to be saltier wait we should describe the what the product is first well this well the first product was that were these in-ear earbuds we okay, did yeah. beats right and and you know it was it, it it was both it started out with this is the kind of this is who i am and uh -huh. this is what i want and and then as we got into some ideas it was very much oh i like that but a little more like this kind of thing and and it's been interesting for me working with entertainment personalities and and it's really this this challenge of capturing their energy and, and enthusiasm but guiding them to do a good product mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and 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 as we've talked there's a lot of things that make a good product so so that was how we got introduced and then unrelated um, she became involved with polaroid um and they were working on some products and uh, i got a call from her manager saying we like you to get in and help you know mm -hmm. and so um so that's how that happened and we developed a series of uh, three products one was a very simple printer um but um one was another um, a printing camera and then these glasses right? hmm. which um unfortunately the printer was the only one that actually went went to market but the um the glasses were a really interesting idea um that were without a lot of serious functionality it was, it sort of came from, an, um, she on tour used to wear these um, LCD glasses that would flash phrases back at the audience. So it had words that would scream across her glasses. I don't mm -hmm. know exactly what they were. So she had this notion of glasses that recorded and played back to the people who were looking huh. at. And, and so the question was how to actually achieve that, right? And so we went through um, a fairly long process of figuring out how to do that and developed it, prototyped it, and we're heading towards production. And then for a variety of factors, I'm not even sure that the whole thing kind of fell apart or stopped. And so, okay. but, um, but that was, and so that's how I got introduced yeah. to Polaroid. Well, I always saw those as more of like a, almost as more of a art slash statement piece. Yeah. Cause like, I mean, I, I wouldn't actually buy a pair of glasses that has outward facing screens that displays my Instagram, but like there's something something that I feel when I see somebody like Lady Gaga wearing those. And I thought that that was a really nice piece. Uh, you know, actually, I, I like the product because if you, if you tried to take it seriously as a functional thing, it's, it's, it's exactly what you said. It is. It was this sort of form of expression. And whether mm -hmm. whether you're playing back video you just recorded or preloaded slideshows or whatever, it was just sort of this idea of this sort of making your, your face this sort of outward facing interface and mm -hmm. capturing moments. So um, it, and it was actually a very challenging yeah technical technical achievement yeah, yeah exactly to figure out gnarly well how many people walk around in those kanye glasses the shutter shades the shutters on them right i mean yeah. that's that's the least practical mm -hmm. thing to ever put on your face but i think people enjoy expressing themselves that way and it felt like you know for a little while maybe google glass was going to represent something like that but it just it didn't and it didn't catch on or it caught it on like with the wrong people a first teeny tiny prism that lives up into the right of your eyeball instead of yeah. instead of across your entire face well they hid they hid the the technology they yeah. wanted to make the technology subtle and maybe if they had embraced yeah. it like this and yeah well it's interesting I, I think glass is a really interesting case study in 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 a lot of things one was how not to launch a product but um, <laughs> but, but you know because it is i mean first of all if, if you're doing something wearable you you pick the most sensitive area on the human body you can possibly <laughs> pick you know which right is right yeah. and then throw into it this sort of idea of of privacy or, or invading privacy and then you seed it with just sort of openly you know it's something i learned at beats you know it was very important to the brand who was wearing the product and where mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. sort of establishing its iconography so if you're throwing it out on any um an, on a um an, an arrogant nerd roaming the streets yeah 
you know, it's irritating you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a bus, a busload of uh, of people get off the the you know the tech bus yeah. in, in and, San Francisco, all wearing them, and yeah. it just sends and the then, wrong image. Yeah, and who wants to be part of that club, right? Yeah, and, yeah. So, so it's 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 an interesting. And then later there was sort of, okay, well, we're going to put it on some runway models, right? That'll mm -hmm, make it cool, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. Didn't work either. So it'll be interesting to see what what happens next. But the you know the thing about it and 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 wearables and the Apple Watch is. When you start throwing it on people's bodies, there's a whole new dynamic that emerges that mm -hmm. I don't most Apple probably understands, but most tech companies don't, you know, mm -hmm. and it is that emotional component and that expressive mm -hmm. component. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the functionality of the watch. It's what is it saying about me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and what, and, you know, I always say about fashion is fashion is the tribe you belong to, or more importantly, the tribe you want to belong to. Right, right, right. And right. So, um, you know, and then how we dress and sort of a signa you know, sort of symbolizes many mm -hmm. of those things. So once you start throwing that component into a piece of technology, it's a whole nother dynamic. Yeah. And it's, and it's, mm -hmm. it's an interesting, unpredictable, fraught with danger kind of thing, right? To be very <laughs> right. careful about. You could see Apple preparing for this in the way that they, um, started to put together their retail strategy, right? Mm -hmm. They hired a bunch of people from from fashion mm -hmm. and, and from high-end retail. They started to build the the watch buying experience into being more like walking into a, a you know, a Swiss watch store, a mm -hmm. Rolex store or something where um, everything's behind glass. You've got to be kind of a special person to walk in in the first place and ask for the thing from under the counter. Then there are a variety of styles that you can identify, um, you know, your taste with. And, uh, and, and it's all kind of, it has that kind of exclusive, that like backstory laden mm -hmm. feel to it. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I think it's a fantastic product. I mean, I, I, I and I think the watch that, you mean? Yeah, and I think they did an amazing job. And and it's one of those things. I think it gets <coughs> criticized a little too early because it is seeking still its killer app, right? Mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. it really is. But it, I, I believe it will happen. Um, the reason I don't wear one is I. I, I'm trying to wean myself from notifications and so mm -hmm, much information mm -hmm, in my life. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to put it on my wrist right now. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just like yet another thing to stare at when I should be looking out at the world or right, talking, talking right. to my kids or something, you know. But I, I do think it's an amazing product. What do you see as far as, you know, technology sort of merging into our lives? Is it going to just present new ways of being intrusive or are we actually headed for for an era when things like smartwatches, you know, things you can talk to in your home, uh, your computer and so on are linked together so seamlessly that you're not interacting with them all the time? I, I'm hopeful that'll happen. I, I think um, we're at this weird stage right now where it's it's just you're, you're, you're you really feel quite inundated, right, mm -hmm. of... of um, Different systems, different understandings, different interfaces, constant flow of information coming from different angles. It's, you know, and I, I like I said, I was serious. I've noticed it that, you know, when I'm out to dinner with my wife and there's a lull in the conversation, I have this urge to like <laughs> yeah. reach in my pocket, right? Because right, I'm right. so used to just, you know, this happening. But I think, you know, two things are, are happening. One is this more movement towards, as you said, this sort of seamlessness or integration of technology in, in a way that it's a little more in the background mm -hmm. and still presenting with great functionality, you know, and, and, and great services and great content, but maybe coming down a little bit. Second is I think I, I talked to a lot of people and they have similar feelings of starting to get to this breaking point where they, where people will demand that because mm -hmm. it does begin to feel intrusive, right? It does, you know, just actually have a, this last weekend at Thanksgiving, I have a large family and we're hanging out and I looked around and everybody under the age of 30 was staring at their smartphone, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it's like, okay, put them in a basket, right? <laughs> um, as I said, I, I'm starting to see information come from so many different places. The other thing that's, that's, I think, really challenging right now is the 
way things work are, is not bulletproof, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and it, it actually takes. And I've been doing a lot of work in distributed audio in the smart home, and and we're still a ways from getting it to mainstream, despite all of the hoopla. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It just to to get things connected, to have them work reliably, without having to have an innate understanding of networking. And mesh networks, and right, 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 <laughs> yeah. and yeah. bandwidth, and bit rate, and all this stuff. It's right. Like, my wife is a great example of that, you know, because I was um, experimenting with AirPlay speakers all over our house, uh-huh. and when uh-huh. they work, they're fantastic. But they, you know, we have we live in a 120 year old Victorian with lath and plaster walls, so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. our Wi-Fi isn't always the best. <laughs> and she finally said, you know, I she called me one day and said, that, you know, the, the speaker in the the guest room won't work. Okay, yeah. All right, go first of all uh, unplug. The, the airport, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, now, if that doesn't work, you know, oh no, first restart the speaker, then unplug the airport, then go down and unplug the cable modem. And then if it still doesn't work, call me back. She said, you know, F you, I'm not yeah. going to do that. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> I, I go through the same thing in, 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 uh, in my house and uh, everyone who comes in, uh, we, we have both an Amazon Echo and a Sonos system. And yeah, everyone Sonos who comes too. in, including often my wife, who, who uses both systems regularly, assumes that you can control the Sonos through the Echo. And they'll like... Because they'll why like, wouldn't you? Yeah, why, yeah, why, why wouldn't that work? Yeah. That seems yeah. like a completely natural thing to do. The Echo can play music. So you talk to the Echo, but then if the Sonos is playing something else, they start both playing and then people get confused. And it's like, you know, the, the explanation is, oh, well, they're rival platforms. They haven't, they haven't you know, prioritized integration of these sense. things. Yeah. And, yeah, of course, Amazon is, is cutthroat. They don't make their things work with other things. Yeah, it, it's just, it's immensely frustrating. It's like, yeah. why doesn't this and work? The result and is like, I enjoy reading about this in Wired Magazine, but I do not want any of these things anywhere near my house. Right, right. The result is that that the humans end up being an M2M layer in all of this stuff, right? Yeah. You like, you know, you, you ask Echo um, who sang some song and then it tells you and then you pick up your phone and you type the name of the song into the Sonos app and then you hit go. So you're, you're, you're acting as that like translation yeah. layer. Well, and, you know, it goes back to this idea of, design driven because ultimately you know that sort of idea of reliability and simplicity and understandability is is part of the experience right so mm-hmm. really you sh- you know when when working on products you, that should be a primary consideration right and, mm-hmm. and, and and you know i realize a lot of things that go out are are early and they go out for a reason to to learn and see how people adapt to them but ultimately building great products is looking at every aspect of the experience and making sure it's good for people. I, I have a I have a question that's, that's a new topic. As you said, you mentioned that you're working on a new mobile phone project yeah. um, before we started mm-hmm. before we started um, recording. Um, can you tell us about that mobile phone project? And also my secondary question is, as someone who's designing mobile phones, why are mobile phones so large now and why can't we go back to having small mobile phones that fit in our pockets? Uh, okay, <laughs> well, I'll take question number one first and then we'll get back to the second one. So yeah, we, we just recently um, launched a brand called OB World Phone. It's a, it's a project with John Scully, who was CEO at Apple when I was there. And, and essentially, the, it, it is a new brand of design-driven mobile phones, Android phones, um, aimed at um, rising markets around the world. And and so what, what, what we discovered was that you know, there was this significant gap, you know, and it, we're, we're basically selling the phones in Southeast Asia, um, India, UAE, Africa, Pakistan, you know, roll out in Turkey as well, eventually 70 countries around the world. But there is there was a significant gap between what most people considered a well-designed phone, which would probably be an iPhone or a Samsung Galaxy, mm-hmm. and what most people were able to afford, which were tended to be inexpensive derivative kind of 
design mm-hmm. and we felt there was a place you know what, what what i refer to as a design gap right mm-hmm. that they could be filled with very well designed <coughs> phones um at you know price points two hundred dollars or less mm-hmm. that that the people could aspire to be associated with and build a brand that that had very positive values and you know, very designed from brands so that that's what obi's about we launched it last august we so far have rolled out in um Vietnam, UAE, and India, mm-hmm. and just you know, sort of taking country by country. And it runs Android. Yeah, it's, it runs. It runs Android. It's um, our own our own UI skin on top. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, it was just and, and you know, the, most of our effort, you know, back to that ten percent inspiration, ninety percent mm-hmm. perspiration, was really taking a design and figuring out how to push it through the factory system at cost, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and really, you know, work it and not take no for an answer and figure out how you could actually create a well-designed, beautiful, material-rich phone mm-hmm. out of bill of materials that would allow you to, to, to well, sell at those prices. Before getting to the the phone size question, what um I mean, in it, I mean obviously cost is a factor, but like what other kinds of things did you need to take into account when designing this thing for these markets as opposed to like the, you know, like the the traditional like first world ones? Um well, a lot of it was, you know, well, the, the challenge, a couple of challenges. One is you, you, you also need to deliver um, good specifications, right? And a lot, because a lot mm. of people do are, um, buy phones on specifications for in terms of processor, processor speed, RAM, screen resolution, size, so forth. So, huh. so a lot of it's outside of our realm, but the, the, the operations group from OB really figuring out how to um, buy components and get them into the phone at, at prices that would still allow that bill of materials to exist. That's interesting. I feel like I tend to have the feeling that outside of like the phone bloggers who, who scrutinize these things, that, that the, the markets are, you know, indifferent to a lot of the specs. But we've become no, much less spec driven yeah, than when we, we, used to we be, did right? our initial research we found in in these countries, especially India and UAE, that that they're very much specs and they were replacing phones very often just to move hmm. up from a specification point of view, clock speed and whatever. Yeah. But one of the other interesting things about it is that um, our our batteries are nearly double the size of of like say a Samsung Galaxy, where, yeah. where mm-hmm. because in in many of these areas people don't have as easy access to power and recharging. So mm-hmm. instead of an eighteen hundred milliamp battery, we have a thirty three hundred milliamp battery, mm-hmm. which leads to a little more thickness. But you know, it found it to be very important. So mm-hmm. a, a lot of it was that, but just you know, really trying to build great phones at cost. Um, the answer to your second question is is an interesting one. I, I mean. Of course, a lot of it has to do with screen size and, and the, you know, the, the evolution of the smartphone. You know, the, the original, I, I had one of these, um, I think it was an Ericsson. It was super tiny. I remember uh-huh. it was like a like, Zoolander phone. Yeah, it was almost yeah. like a Zoolander phone. And, and I remember at first it was really cool because I would take it out and everyone would say, "Wow, that's an amazing small phone." But it became, you know, actually kind of ridiculous yeah. to talk on it. Um, but you know, with with the advent of the iPhone and the smartphone, you know, screen size begins to define largely the footprint of the device. Mm-hmm. And and of late, um, there is an emphasis towards as we move further away from voice and more into data and, and mm-hmm. consuming content into larger larger displays, very obvious mm-hmm. stuff. So that drives that. Um, thickness is an interesting one. It really has to do with your hardware stack up and a lot to do with, with, with battery, which mm-hmm, tends to drive mm-hmm. with battery and radio. Um, I think, although we're nearing a point where thickness is, you know, the thinner you get, it's, it starts to become, while it's cooler and may fit in your pocket a little better, more difficult to hold, hold. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then the other, it puts a large burden on the structure of the device to be robust. Right. right? right. And so it'll be interesting to see as we get into, you know, just reading about 
um, Apple may be ditching the beloved 3.5 millimeter audio jack <laughs> towards a light yeah, connector to, to, you know, to drop a millimeter in thickness. And, you know, you start wondering, you know, how thin is actually, you know, if we get, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, even if it's a rumor, it's extraordinary that we're at the point where that's a plausible rumor yeah. <laughs> that the, that the, the, the headphone so, jack is so too So do you thick. really think that people want to have like 1080p or 4k in their pockets as opposed, well, I mean, as opposed to like having a phone that can actually fit in their pockets because like all the latest like the 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 tabs and the mm. you know the the maxi sized iphones and stuff like i know a lot of people who are like really frustrated especially women who they can't because the pockets are like half the size of the phone and so like i would like to have a small phone to put in my i want an iphone 4 with a high resolution yeah, screen exactly. is what I'm saying. <laughs> no, that, I, actually I, i'm kind of with you I, I actually do although um it's you know occasionally you know with with one thing that drives me crazy when I forget my glasses is so the type size on my iPhone. Yeah, <laughs> but um, it's I actually agree. But for some people, I've talked. I've seen an enormous amount of um, the the larger iPhone, and I ask people, "How is it?" You know, mm -hmm. and most most people say, "Oh no, it's totally cool. I don't. I get used to the size. It doesn't bother me, and so forth." Um, I think though that's is an interesting you know, in, about voice calls because I think th that the sort of five point five inch is kind of at the limit where you don't look stupid talking on it. Right? Yeah, pop tart, yeah, yeah. Pop tart phone. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean we, we my I carry this this giant phone that we were passing around earlier, uh, the Nexus Six, and when I got it, it it felt like I was talking into like a king size Kit Kat bar. Yeah. all the time, <laughs> like walking down the street, um, or or almost almost analogous to like carrying a boombox on your shoulder. Yeah. Like it's so out. <laughs> Sized. It's, it's like then, when you yeah. see someone taking a picture with an iPad, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah, but so. it, it's something I got used to. And the my only observation on the size is that it works for me here because um, uh, I'm often driving or I'm like on my bike and I have a bag or something. But in, in New York, it wouldn't have worked for me because I always kept my phone in a pocket. Mm -hmm. And it, this one feels like it's always about to well, Also, I think with out. like accessories, right? Like, you know, people are, I, I think that there's going to be a, I don't know, you can, you're the designer in the room here. You can talk about it. But I, I mean, I feel like there's your phone's becoming more of your like uplink that stays in your bag. And we have enough like wearables and like devices, you know, like headphones that also have Bluetooth in them and everything that like you don't actually have to be interacting with the phone so much and can just take it out of your backpack if you need to get mm -hmm. like to a nice map or like watch a nice video or something. But if you're just doing voice or, or even texting or something like that, I think that the, the, functionality is going to be abstracted into different yeah no i, I agree i think you, you see more and more dis distributed interface mm -hmm. you know and and with and the phone is is your central processing it's your radios and stuff i think you know that, that that's a real common scenario you'll start to see more yeah. of the interesting thing about phone design is it's actually very challenging because you know there's this different sort of constraint which drives you to a different sort of scale and perspective well you are really very constrained dimensionally mm -hmm. i mean there is a lot of emphasis to make it as small as possible and as close to the border of the glass or the screen as possible right so if you're trying to create a design that is in fact original and distinctive you know you start getting into very minute things to do that um you know with sort of different overlay of materials slightly different edge treatment um slightly different way of treating a connector or a button and so forth, which the interesting thing to me, though, I found is, you know, maybe five years ago, 
those are things I thought, you know, most consumers kind of would take for granted. Mm -hmm. Now it's like an obsessed feature, right? It's mm -hmm. something people look at their phone and they talk about, look at, look at the button, look at the yeah, volume yeah. button. I saw an ad for an HTC One where they were like showing slow motion machining and they're like, we got a special bit for our milling machine <laughs> so we could make a chamfer around the outside edge. Yeah, exactly. It's 45 uh -huh. degrees, yeah, this yeah, chamfer. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> and it, but as a designer, it makes it very challenging. And that's one of the uh -huh. I, I, you have to check out the, the OB phones. I think we did actually come up with some things that feel fresh and, yeah, and yeah. unique, but still are. <laughs> the, the armchair designers will be pleased. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's um, but it is an interesting phenomenon, and the the the, the impact that these you know little rectangles of black glass have yeah. had in our lives, and and have become you know so we're so dependent on their functionality. They be their status symbols. There mm -hmm. you know there's so much that goes on to this, yeah. which is really really incredible. And they've introduced a design consciousness into society in general that's that's extraordinary. I mean, if you look at like any kind of consumer electronics before and after the iPhone came out, mm -hmm. um, you know, everything, whether it was a phone or a, or a, a, you know, a stereo component or something before the iPhone came out would be, um, you know, think of like a Blackberry from 2005, yeah. right? It's like, it's too light when you pick it up and it kind of rattles a little bit when you yeah, shake it yeah. and it's silver, uh, painted plastic to look like, to look like metal. And, uh, and now everything is exquisite. Yeah. I kind of like, feel like it started with the like, at least, well, from what I can remember, like I remember the the click wheel on the iPod was mm -hmm, kind of the yeah. one of the first things that made me realize like, oh, wow, you can change the way that physical interfaces are on something and like make a huge difference in the way that, in the way that it's used. Because like for that interfaces for like accessing data on a small mobile device mm -hmm. was like really hard. It was all keyboards and like Blackberries yeah. and everything, like you said. So in a technical sense, how, how you mentioned that it's it's difficult to get all of this stuff um, into a beautifully designed phone package. When you set out to design, you know, a phone in this sort of price range mm -hmm. and and feature set, are you starting from scratch or are you like going into to uh, you know Shenzhen and beginning with a platform that people know how to make and kind of building on top of it? Uh, both, right? I mean, we're part of, and in particular in the case of Obi, you know, we're of course um, from this sort of driving um, of a reasonable bill of materials. We're looking to leverage as much as possible, right? Mm -hmm. And so part of part of keeping costs down is you you do try and find the places where you can um, leverage volume, right? Mm -hmm. Things that are being made not just for you but for other people because the the cost is down. But then you know what we what we start to do is look at if that breaks a design or not, or if where are the areas we need to improve it to make it mm -hmm. better, right? Mm -hmm. And sort of make those calls. You can be very to, mercenary about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the good thing about doing a startup, right? Yeah. Because yeah. we don't have a lot of legacies and, and we've actually been empowered to make these decisions because mm -hmm. it was the foundation was make great design products. That was yeah. how the company was started. So so we um so we're able to push on factories and figure out, okay, no, we can't put the buttons there. And yeah. no, we need yeah. to do this antenna break differently and all the things, you know, that mm -hmm. go into making making a, a a phone like that. But it is it's pretty incredible though, the amount of resource that's out there mm -hmm. and actually how quickly these very complicated devices can be engineered and mm -hmm. developed. Right, right. It's, it's, so what it's, are your favorite uh design tools? Favorite design tools for like, me personally? Yeah, like what 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 CAD do you use? What like well, I mean, what's you know, your? I you actually like? don't do a lot. I don't do three D CAD at all. I actually okay. have I have uh, my do my clay, team you clay have, models. You have CAD, yeah, you, <laughs> well, it's interesting. I was I yes, I'm old enough to be. I was trained pre CAD. 
right? Mm-hmm. So I, I learned drafting. How to, I learned how to draw on a drafting, you know, draft mm-hmm. on a drafting wow. machine. Everything was sketched by hand. So, but the, the you know I use I've been using the computer for most of my career. But what's what I discovered is I actually when I'm planning out a design, look at it fairly two dimensionally from that training. Right? I start I look at things orthographically mm-hmm. and sort mm-hmm. of create and build that that way. And so, but. You know, I have group, group of people that are in, incredibly skilled in Alias, Rhino, SolidWorks, a whole variety of software to create amazing products and and, and data. So it's not mm-hmm. actually a requirement for me anymore. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. Um, but it, it, but it also, I, you know, I, I tried to work in 3D, but it just didn't feel right to me. And it's mm-hmm. just the way I was trained. And so I do a lot of um, orthographic um, sketches and renderings in Photoshop. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 use those as an initial basis to describe what what I think we want to do. You know, and work work with my team to start develop that and mm-hmm. so forth. And um, so so it's it's so me. I'm I'm actually pretty limited in the tools that I use. Right. It also has a lot to do with I don't have as much time to sit at my desk as I used to. Right. But, um, so you're not diving into the low well, level. You're, stuff you're the boss now. So <laughs> yeah. Somebody's yeah. got to keep everybody busy. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's the um. But but um. But you know the the guys which are just across the street from you. We've got an ama- amazing team which we've spent a lot of time in in putting together. And you know because we we came to this realization that what we're really we're in the talent business. Mm-hmm. Really, mm-hmm. it's really what 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 we are about. And and so acquiring and developing, nurturing, building a team of talent was our our, our most valuable asset. Mm-hmm. And that so that's we we have a really amazing group of designers from all over the world. Um, that's a, a benefit of being here in San Francisco is that this is the design capital of the world, especially when it comes to technology. So mm-hmm. you really draw people in from all over the place with amazing background and, and, and training in school to, to be part of our team. And so it's, and to be right next to the technical people too, and yeah. sort of collaborate. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and everybody lives together. One last question, which is even more open-ended than what we've been talking about. One thing I've been thinking about is, you know, as a, as a, designer you work in making products and doing all this stuff and everything but there's new there's new frontiers of technology which are going to be coming to the forefront of consumer like within the foreseeable future like for example we spent some time thinking about synthetic biology and other fields that are like traditionally like really far away from what you think of as a field that designers live in but that's going to have to happen at some point so like do you have any thoughts about how the designers of today are going to start thinking about how to approach like getting into those new fields where there's like no precedent for the way that we currently do things. Well, the, the, the interesting thing about that is, is when you look at the, the training you go out as a designer, right? You, you learn as a designer. And so as part of it is, you know, of course, based on tools and products that people are doing, but a lot of it has to do with looking at things, I, identifying opportunities and problems, working out how to solve them, conceptualizing, visualizing, testing, all this sort of process you go in making something. And firms like IDEO have made an entire business on applying that model to all kinds of stuff, right? And and the, the idea of design thinking, which extends mm-hmm. well beyond the making of an object to the making of anything, right? Mm-hmm. The, whether it's a business, whether it's a social structure, it's sort of the idea of following a design process to, right. to build anything. And so I think it, it it positions people in the design discipline really well to sort of move beyond the mediums that they're working in today. You know, getting back to this field that I'm in and why I'm still doing it, why I love it, is it it's always changing. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like every literally every six months things change in some degree. And whether it's a technology, whether it's a, a emphasis in in markets that we're working in, whether it's you know a, a new product which redefines something, it's constantly changing. Mm-hmm. And and every 
So many months we get a new group of people to work with, to develop something new, to respond to that change, you know, mm -hmm. which, which, oh, it makes, it makes it very interesting. And, and so those kinds of things are super exciting because, you know, there really isn't a limit to what, you know, if something can be thought of, envisioned, developed and created, there's a design component. Right, mm -hmm. right. You know, I say that to, you know, a lot of companies that try and get to understand about their brand is that, you know, everything you put out to the world should be designed, you mm -hmm. know, whether it's your product, whether it's the flyer you throw in the box, whether it's whatever, you know, you sh the design is design is at its core, the purposeful creation of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? And so anything that you're making or delivering or showing to people should be thoughtfully created. Mm -hmm. And that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's what makes it's such a fun world to work in. Well, that's that's the end, I think. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's, that's a fantastic that's place good, to wrap yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, great. Well, thank you very much for, for coming by and, and having a chat with us. This has been really great. Oh, it's a pleasure. Terrific. Pleasure. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank awesome. you. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, Make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>